I met the inspiring author and palliative care pioneer Catherine Mannix just before she launched her paperback version of her amazing best-selling book with the end in mind dying death and wisdom in an age of denial and we covered lots of interesting stuff for instance what is palliative care and how can we access that and if we do have unresolved issues in our life how might that affect us at the end of life and if we do have a fulfilling life does that mean we can be ready to die when the time comes I'm also a member of a local book club and I invited the other members to read with the end in mind and when we got together to talk about the book the conversation lasted for about two and a half hours and so after I've had a chat with Catherine Mannix at the end of this podcast you can get a sneaky peek of what we thought about the book and what we talked about so if you can stay tuned right until the end. Thank you so much for coming in and, and chatting for me today. And after the success of your book, it's been phenomenal. And um, you know, it's really helped open up, I think, the conversation about death. But also I think the book that you've written is very honest and candid, but it's also very reassuring. Um, and I wanted to ask you, what can we do as individuals to help uh, our society deal with death better? Well... Thank you for inviting me because every platform that I can find that helps to promote this message is, I feel, really, really important. And what you're trying to do, what I'm trying to do, we're singing from the same song sheet, aren't we? Yeah. So there's something about public awareness of dying um, that is a little bit troubling. And I think it's that we're trying really hard not to upset each other. Yeah. So... I meet sick people who want to be able to talk about their arrangements for their funeral, for example. People are very good at talking about after death. They'll arrange funerals, they'll do wills, things like that. And often that's their way into the conversation about what they want during and in the run-up to actually dying. And yet these sick people find that the well people who love them don't want them to be sad so they kind of close them down Mm. and try to avoid them having that conversation and that's terribly frustrating so that means that their confidence then become professional people you know their their nurse who's a palliative care nurse or their heart failure specialist nurse or, or whoever who understands and regularly talks to them about how seriously ill they actually are And those specialists also talk very optimistically about the hope for living well in whatever time is left and symptom management and things like that. So they know that these aren't doom and gloom conversations. But families, I think they worry that if they just open that door a tiny little chink, all this emotional awfulness is going to flood out. Everybody's going to feel overwhelmed. They'll never get back to normal again. So... I think if we were to ask the public to just do one thing, it might be for everybody to volunteer for themselves. What would be the single most important thing to me? If I thought I only had three months left to live, what would be the most important thing to me? Would it be to do something off my bucket list? Mm. Or would it be to repair a relationship that's been ruptured? 
and that I feel regret about? Or would it be to just have as many hugs as possible with my most important people? And it'll be different for everybody. But if we start the conversation by saying what we would like, we then can enable other people to say what they would like. And that might be a bit easier Mm. than asking somebody a question. Yes. Yeah, that's true, actually. Um, And I think the thing is, is that people don't, they sort of walk through life with sort of blinkers on, don't they? And they Mm. don't, it's like this morning I... I picked my son out of bed and I gave him this really wonderful hug. And I think it is because of the work that you and I are doing that you have those moments and you really savour them. And I think it is those things that thinking, okay, what can we resolve now? What can we do to, to make that life better so that we feel a little bit better when the time comes when we are dying? Yeah, I think, absolutely. You know, absolutely. that's really important. Um, I was going to ask you a very basic question, which was, what is what is palliative care? Because I know what it is. Obviously, you know what it is, because you've been working in it for how, how many years? 30 years in yeah, palliative care. Yeah, it's a long yeah. time. So I thought if people didn't know what it was, it'd be quite good to say exactly what is palliative care, and is it available to anyone um, wherever you die? Okay, so... So I guess the first important thing to say about palliative care is that it isn't only about dying. In fact, it isn't really about dying. Mm. It's about really good management of the symptoms of an illness or a condition that people have. It first was developed as a specialty mainly alongside cancer care. And that was over the 1960s, 70s, 80s, when cancer management options were not nearly as wide as they are now and survival for most cancers wasn't nearly as good Mm, as it is now and there was almost a kind of despairing thing going on in cancer care which was to keep looking for one more treatment one more treatment one more treatment even when no treatments were working anymore of course these treatments have horrible side effects people feel really sick they lose their hair their immune system gets damaged so that they can't be with people who've got coughs and colds and sneezes which if you're a parent or a grandparent that's most of your children or grandchildren most of the time Um, and so Cicely Saunders in the 1960s was really setting up a a, a radical alternative movement of let's find a way of managing your symptoms acknowledging that there isn't any more treatment stopping all the treatment and its side effects and living well for this Mm. last bit of life Um, so palliative care has gradually grown from those really strong roots to respect all the domains of a person so dame cicely was very very clear that we're not just a physical entity with um, aches and pains and breathlessness and appetite or whatever we are also an emotional being with sadness and hopes and anxieties and memories we are social beings we're rooted in perhaps a family perhaps a friendship group I tend to talk about it as as our village the people who matter to us most and we're related to some of them yes and we're not related to lots of them And that we are, whether we're religious or not, spiritual beings, that there's a kind of existential dimension which overlaps into our emotional being. Mm. And that all four of those parts of us are really, really important. So she was really interesting in coming across people whose pain was really difficult to manage. 
And she realised that for some of those people, it was just they hadn't diagnosed the cause of the pain properly or they hadn't found the painkiller that suited that person best. But very often, people whose pain couldn't be managed also had some other deep-rooted emotional distress or some kind of spiritual issue that was going on or some unresolved difficulty within their family circle. And the pain, in a way, was an expression of all of their suffering. Yeah. And she coined the term total pain total to pain, describe yeah, that. Right. So as palliative care has grown and matured, it's moved on from just cancer to lots and lots of other illnesses. So in my career, I've seen people with heart failure and respiratory diseases and livers that don't work and people waiting for organ transplants. Mm. Um, I've seen people coming in for surgery for cancer that's intended to cure them, but they needed to feel well enough soon enough after their surgery to get on with chemotherapy or radiotherapy treatments so the palliative care team might be asked to come in for their symptom management expertise to get people well enough to have treatment that's going to cure them so it's not just cancer anymore and it's not even people with very advanced disease Mm. anymore it's about where the limits of the current team managing a patient lie to address their particular symptoms yeah So specialist palliative care, palliative medicine is a specialty. It's part of the Royal College of Physicians um, battery of medical specialties. It's got uh, a very tightly described training program to train to be a consultant in palliative medicine. Um, Palliative care nurses uh, undergo postgraduate training. They do master's degrees. They do diplomas. They're very, very specialised nurses. And we work in teams who have physiotherapists, occupational therapists, social workers, pharmacists, chaplains, all sorts of additional people, so that within the team there'll be somebody whose expertise maps to the specific dilemmas that a patient or a family around a patient might have. So it's really rich, it's very rewarding. Yeah, it's incredible. But it means that we're dealing with the most challenging symptoms Mm. and that means inevitably we're dealing a lot of the time with people with very advanced disease and that means inevitably that a lot of our patients happen to be dying. But I think it's really important for listeners to understand that palliative care team doesn't come to see you because you're dying. Yeah. And one of the things that I'm really keen for people to understand is that dying is it's a natural process. It's a biological process like giving birth mm. is. And it mainly doesn't need to be interfered with, just like normal birth doesn't need to be interfered with. It's good to have the symptoms of giving birth well managed, isn't it? It's nice to have your pain well controlled Mm. during labour. But for the safe birth of the baby, mainly a good midwife stands back and lets the process happen. Mm. But a good midwife also knows when the process isn't going going, yeah, the way it should and what she needs to do within her own expertise to manage that situation when she needs to call upon another member of the team for other interventions. And we can accompany dying people in a very similar way where most of the time it's reassurance, it's kindness, it's presence. Unlike giving birth, um, 
dying doesn't hurt. Mm. You know, the process of dying is not a painful no. process. But people are dying of a particular illness, and that illness might have symptoms. So managing the symptoms of the illness is important. Yeah. They won't necessarily get worse towards death. So people don't need to think, oh, if I feel this bad now, how will I feel then? You probably feel pretty much like now, except tireder, actually, yes. is the answer. Yes. Because, I mean, I, I volunteer in a hospice, and I... I I've seen the palliative care team and it's incredible and I've completely changed how I my viewpoint about how I would want to die. I always thought that I would want to die at home and yes I still probably would want to die at home but just seeing the way that the hospice operates I'd be very happy to die there as well mm. but so it's how accessible is it to access that palliative care? Is it available in hospitals? Okay, so that's a really good question. So mm. if we go back to palliative care being about very highly specialist symptom management, whether your symptoms are physical symptoms or whether the symptoms are actually just that the family is falling apart and having a difficult time supporting you and getting a grip mm. on the situation or whether it's emotional symptoms... Hospices are pretty much our intensive care units. They're the places that we take the people whose problems are challenging them enough that they need every nurse who deals with them to be an expert yes. in symptom management. Mm. And that's not most people. So when you look at deaths in England and Wales in 2017-18, about 6 to 8% of deaths took place in hospices. Yes. And we haven't got the capacity no. to take every person who's dying, and nor should we, really, because that then medicalises something that's very normal. Oh, yeah. So palliative care within the NHS is now very widely available. All hospitals have palliative care support teams who are specialists who will come into a ward or an outpatient department and work alongside the doctors and nurses who look after you normally so they don't take over your care no. they kind of add themselves into the team at home there are community palliative care teams some of those are run entirely by the nhs some of them are outreach services from local hospices but they all do the same job which mm. is see you in the place where you live it might be your house might be family members house you might have taken yourself to live in a care home or a nursing home um, the palliative care team will come in and augment the care, advise your carers, advise the district nurse and the GP. District nurses and GPs do fantastic palliative care. They know a lot. They see it all the time. And just like in hospital, if they reach the limit of their knowledge for managing this particular problem for this particular person, they can invite the palliative care team in any time. We're not judgmental. No. Some GPs great at pain control some not so good but they're really good at the psychological aspects of, of control so it's not that we have a threshold below which we won't see people yeah if the team that's looking after you now needs us to come and join them we'll join in for a while we'll stay for the long haul or we'll dip in and out as needed mm. so you can see palliative care people at home you can see them in your clinic or at your bed in a hospital okay and then hospices often offer outpatient clinics as well. So I used to run a cognitive therapy outpatient clinic in our local Marie Curie hospice. You were talking about your CBT work, which you touch on, we talk a lot about in the book, actually. And um, 
I wanted to sort of discuss about how people have unresolved issues and have how do you help people deal with that and do you think it's possible to resolve a lot in a short space of time before you die Mm -hmm. and does that make the death more peaceful for that person there's a saying that people die the way they've lived and I think to an extent that is actually true that there's something about being a person who is kind of relaxed and go with the flow for a lifetime they'll meet the end of their life in that sort of way Mm. and a person who's a bit uptight and anxious and always worrying about what the next problem was is going to be will find health problems challenging as well although I have to say I've observed that those people who are the most anxious those kind of Um, very careful mothers my mother wouldn't let me do this she was always worried about this that and the other and now she's got this really terrible illness and she's really got something to worry about she's completely calm yes and there is something about (laughs) those of us who wait for a disaster to happen rehearsing every possible version of it and therefore being incredibly ready for it Mm, when it does arrive so it's a little bit difficult to predict (laughs) but there's a thing about being at peace in our own minds at the very end of life. And our own mind is the mind that's carried us through life, whether it's been happy-go-lucky or in and out of depression or uh, being a kind of anxious speculator about how things could go wrong and forfending against those things. We still can carry peace of mind into that last bit of life by listening to ourselves and listening to what we actually need. So sometimes at the very end of life, you'll find somebody is still dealing with something that's a really, really old trauma to them. And they've carried it in a tight-lidded little box in their heart Mm. as a little wound, or sometimes as a huge wound, for their whole life. And now it's unresolved and they're facing dying. Now, what would be lovely would be to be able to time travel with that person, go back <laughs> and stop it from having happened. Yeah. Or to be able to deal in the here and now with the thing that happened and make it be okay. But actually, very often, you can't no. make those things no. be okay. But what you can do is enable people to look at how much time they're giving to thinking about the difficult thing whether it's a previous trauma or whether it's worrying about how their family are going to be after they've died or whether it's wondering about whether their symptoms are going to get worse as their illness progresses. Those are things that we need to think about, but we don't need to only think about those. So the cognitive therapy approach is helping people to separate out those thoughts that are helpful from those thoughts that may perfectly well be true but which are undermining peace of mind. So, for example, in the book there's a story about dealing with a mum who it cannot get out of her mind how dreadful it will be for her children mm. to be without her because she's going to die young and they're going to be bereaved of her uh, while they're still very young. And that's true and it's tragic and every time she thinks about it it causes her to feel catastrophically sad. And it means that she can't enjoy the time that she's spending with them. 
because she keeps thinking about what's going to happen. She keeps fast-forwarding into their bereavement. So it's not an untrue thought. It's not a thought you can test against reality and find you're exaggerating things a bit, which is one of the techniques that we use when we're using cognitive therapy, for example, in anxiety, where we're kind of over-emphasising how difficult things might be and under-emphasising mm. our ability to cope. This is a true thought and her children will be bereaved and it is terribly sad. There's no point in telling her not to think about it because actually that's not helpful. She's got work to do around preparing her children for bereavement mm. and she begins to sort out who's going to parent her children, who's going to tell her daughter about periods, um, who's going to uh, tell her daughter things as she's growing up, who's going to do the dad things for, for both of her children. She also starts to prepare memory materials mm. um, and that in itself was absolutely heartrending. but it meant she now could divide her time between thinking those true, sad, difficult thoughts and then using them to drive behaviours that at least she felt were positive, positive. useful behaviours. Yeah. And then at other times when those thoughts flooded into her mind, say, okay, true thoughts, here you are again, but actually I'm busy having a nice time with my kids at the mm. moment, so take a back seat, you'll get your turn, I will pay you attention, and when I pay you attention, we'll do useful stuff. Yeah. But right now you're just not very helpful, thanks. And so she was able to use these cognitive therapy techniques to recognise when her thoughts started to overwhelm her and choose where to put her mm. attention. One of the things I've noticed when I'm reading accounts of people who've written about their own terminal illnesses, and there are some wonderful books out there, wonderful books, is the way people reach a point of realising that they still have a choice about some things, even when their bodies are really not able to do very much for them anymore. They can choose where to put their focus. They can choose what they attend to. They can choose how they interact with the people who are important to them. And in a way, cognitive therapy at the end of life is helping people into that space mm. where they can retain their autonomy by realising and exercising their yeah, choices. Yeah, that's wonderful. And is CBT available? Is this therapy available in most through most palliative care teams uh, that's a good question um so that we've got kind of two levels of cognitive therapy mm. available so i'm trained as a cognitive therapist so if i see a patient in a um a, a hospice outpatient clinic or you know on a ward somewhere what they get is the kind of cognitive therapy that they would get from a clinical psychologist uh, clinical psychologist or psychiatrist or psychiatric nurse have a much broader range of psychological skills. So some some people have access not to a palliative care person who also is a cognitive therapist, mm. but to uh, mental health professionals who are choosing to practice in a physical health setting. So they're not confounded by the physical health problems yeah. that the person's bringing. But one of the things that we've been fortunate enough to be able to do is to develop a thing we call cognitive therapy first aid training so um, a, a six-day training course that teaches 
physical health practitioners with no mental health training background to come and learn over three pairs of days a set of skills for helping people to identify their difficult thoughts, to look at how sometimes the behavioural responses they make to try and solve the dilemma they find themselves in actually turns into a vicious circle that Mm. keeps the dilemma going. Um, Thinking about how sometimes physical symptoms are made worse by our emotional response to them or sometimes how our emotional distress then makes us so tense that we give ourselves physical symptoms real physical symptoms no suggestion that these are symptoms in the mind but this body mind behavior whole person view means that when we're in trouble in one bit of our lives we can end up with trouble in other domains as well yeah so we're teaching cognitive therapy first aid um over the early 2000s i had a couple of big grants to roll that out so there are cognitive therapy first aiders in little pockets all over the place it's great um and uh there are a couple of places who are still running the training so macmillan um have asked us to do foundations training and then st christopher's hospice education center in london is still running the six-day training so people can sign up there wow i mean it would be amazing if it was more more widespread Mm. wouldn't it um have you also seen the other end of the spectrum where someone who has felt they've had a very fulfilling life and they don't have a lot of issues do you find they have a more um peace at the end with dying or is that just this really crazy idea that you know just because you've had a good life because there's this notion isn't there that you've had a good life you're happy having a good death have you actually seen anyone with that i suppose i people bring a state of mind to the very end of their life um And if they're able to see that despite the inevitability of death, they're bringing with them uh, a sense of the things that they've fulfilled, the things that have been important to them, Mm. then people are able to find a sense of peace. It's not without regret. Nobody is ready to die. Very few people are completely ready to die. There's always other things that I would do if I could just have a little bit more time. Interestingly, even very, very elderly people will very often say, you know, it would just be nice to do this this thing that I've always loved just mm. just one more time or, or see one more spring or watch the leaves mm. fall in autumn one more time. Um, there's a mm. lot of reference to nature and I think there's something about the cycle of nature and the magnificence of nature that helps people to get a sense of our own tininess and impermanence in the hugeness of the universe. And a lot of people find that a very comforting way of looking at things, that even when I'm not here anymore, those cycles will go on. There will be another spring. There will will be another autumn. There will be snowy landscapes. So in the sense that we die the way we've lived... If we've lived a contented life, we're likely to bring that contentment with us. Mm. But if we've lived a difficult and discontented life, it is possible to help people to find a, a place of peace of mind. That's nice. Towards the end of life. Yeah, that's lovely. Yes, I think 
usually people's symptoms are very well managed, aren't they? It's that the thing that you can't control at the end of life is weariness. Yeah. Um, and that kind of, you know, the old mobile phone battery, it doesn't matter how long you leave it on charge, it just doesn't really do very <laughs> yeah. well. So sleep is the recharger. Um, and it's probably more important than eating and drinking at that stage. At, at Which is why so many people life. are so sleepy yeah. Yeah. at that point. Yeah. And if you think about it, if you've ever had flu, you sleep a you lot. You just want to sleep, don't yeah. you? Yeah. And then you've got those intervals of being awake where you do the things that need doing and then sleep again. And so that's that's the pattern at the very end of life. So, yes, I see people so weary that eventually lie, lying down and enabling themselves to just relax into the process becomes a relief and it's hard for people in our health and vigor to imagine that we could ever get to a position where we mm. could lie comfortably and accept that this is now very close to the end of my life but yeah you will see it when you're volunteering in the hospice and I have seen it you know, many many thousands of times over my career in palliative care mm. how possible is it for people to die at home a lot of people that I see a lot of them want to do that, but it it's it can be quite difficult at times to get the right help and the equipment that they need at home and just the sort of team of coming in and managing pain and you know, maybe washing and caring for that person. It's it's all those things that are really mm. important as well. So obviously we it's it's you know, I love the idea of the sort of the death that's more natural and less medicalized and I guess that's being at home but how can we facilitate that more how can that we make that happen more mm. that's a really good question mm. so again partly this hinges on the original model being a cancer model and when we reach the end of all treatments for a cancer so we're not having treatment anymore the pattern of what happens is a fairly um regular decline in our health and vigour so that over a period of weeks maybe months the end of life is in sight and families can probably manage that length of life expectancy mm. but increasingly people are living to great old age they've got multiple different things wrong with them and they're becoming very frail. And mm. frail is becoming a medical description for it's difficult for you to have any energy, your mobility is very limited. It's dangerous. You're not dangerous. terribly uh, uh, interested in eating and drinking very well anymore. Um, it might be that your heart is not working at the capacity that it was when you were younger. Your lungs are not working at the capacity that they were when mm. you were younger. And so your whole body is wearing out, but you're not dying of anything specific and in particular. Yeah. And that's a really, really long haul. And it's a long haul for the person who's enduring it. And it's a long haul for the people who are their family and yeah, friends who it's want to It can be exhausted, can't it? Crises can happen out of the blue. Crises can happen um, outside normal working hours for the response services like district nurses and GPs. So then it's the out-of-hours service who often don't know the person. So one of the keys to being able to die at home if that's what we want to happen is 
to plan really early, to start to experiment with getting care to mm. what what are the different agencies that might be able to help um, sometimes actually that's means tested if it's social care and it might mean that people need to pay for people who will come in and help them to get dressed help them get to the toilet help them to remember to take mm. all of their tablets um, not everybody's got family who live nearby family who live nearby might well also be committed to working and bringing up children so it is a very very big real and present challenge and one of the things in which community mobilization might make a difference so there's a project going on around the uk at the moment called compassionate communities um, and this is actually about communities volunteering uh, time and expertise so that people can be visited, can be supported, there can be a telephone number that you can call if you uh, are lonely, because loneliness is a part factor. of the epidemic exactly. here. Um, or if you can't get uh, the, the foil pack off the back of your next tablet. Um, it's little things, isn't it? So yeah. it can be tiny things that make a huge difference. Mm. But I think as time goes by, we're going to find that because people are living longer, it means there are more of us trying to use the same set of national health services yeah. and social services. And it also means that you know when we live longer, we don't get a couple of extra decades in our 20s and 30s. No. It's our 80s and 90s and 100s that we get presented with. And, uh, you know, old age uh, is no place for sissies as no. Betty Davis famously, famously said <laughs> it's hard work it's yeah. really difficult um, maybe the children of our older citizens are themselves pensioners with their own health issues so I think it's a challenge for us as a society yeah. to think about yeah well that's it you know I mean I, there's a there's a lot of stuff at the moment about oh is, wouldn't it be great to die at home but in my head I'm thinking it's still really it's complex it's it's so complicated mm. and I think there is a loss of community and that sounds amazing the compassionate community that that, that you're that, that you're talking about because that's that's exactly what we need is that people do volunteering but you know there's a lot of old people out there who don't have anyone coming and seeing them they're on their own they might be on your street it wouldn't take much to just go knock on the door and say is there anything you need and just keep an eye on them and mm that that's community to me and then taking that one step further and actually helping where you can and if more people did that it would make such a difference i think mm. well people might be interested to look it up there's a website the compassionate yeah. communities website and one of the communities from has recently published their data for their first um year of being up and running mm. um and they've transformed place of care that's in so that people who were being taken into hospital are now able to stay at home. I think we've got to be a little bit careful about overemphasizing death at home is the perfect I agree. place to die. I agree. I think actually if we're going to be measuring at the end of life whether we got the care that we really wanted rather than what room in what institution was the bed in on which you died because mm. um, that's only measuring the last day of your life and that might have been a crisis who knows yeah um how many days of the last 90 days of your life did you spend in the place that you chose to yeah. be yeah. i think is a much much mm. 
better. That's, that's a good way of looking at it, yeah. actually, isn't it? And what are your views about hospital death and how that's managed now? And do you feel that pain for people that are in their sort of last stages of life is being managed well in hospitals or...? Well, it's, it's really difficult to generalise, isn't it? I spent the yeah. last 10 years of my professional career working in a hospital palliative care team. Um, I worked in a, a big city, ho- city-wide hospital trust, several hospitals, and staff were compassionate and kind and keen to do things right, to the extent that the emergency room invited the palliative care team to come and do a project to help them better to identify people who arrived and were sick enough to die and should be um, palliated rather than investigated Yeah. because actually they were already known in the system perhaps mm. or too sick to save and you can get people in who are too sick to save and you're so busy trying to reverse the irreversible that they don't get a chance to say goodbye. Yeah, 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 that's um, true. So I know that um, hospitals have a bad reputation. Yes. But yes. actually, I think that's partly because there are occasional really difficult deaths. Mm. And those stories tend to end up in the media. Yeah. But just like nobody reports that the trains arrived on time, <laughs> um, nobody it's reports true. that you know, these people on this ward over this six-month period uh, were attended to with courtesy and kindness and dignity and they met the end of their lives well supported Mm. with their families allowed to visit at any time and with their families supported and given access to make themselves a cup of tea in the kitchen. You know, there are ways of making it bearable in hospital you can't make it be home no but you know you can say to the family look you're going to be here for the long haul let's get some armchairs in this room bring your slippers in um this is where you can get yourself a cup of tea yeah um if there's anything else your mum wants let us know we'll see if we can sort that um if the family fancy a takeaway this is the nearest place to go and bring it um after nine o'clock at night we can let you use the patient's lounge to f- gather your family yeah. and try and keep the noise down please you know we can make it bearable yeah it's always going to be sad we're always going to be looking at the end of the life of somebody that we love yeah with sadness and that lens sometimes also changes the way we perceive other people's behaviors around us mm. so those few nurses with all of those patients will always be in a hurry and it's sometimes possible to misperceive the hurry as failure to care, yeah, failure of compassion, yeah, 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 yeah. which it rarely is. Yeah, um, so, so true. So fi- again, finding people who can help in hospital, there are now several organisations who will provide volunteers to come into the hospital and help to accompany dying people and their families. So they will go and get you a cuppa they'll go and sort out your parking ticket as run yeah. out in the hospital car park yeah. whatever so they're, they're doing kind of practical jobs that allow the family to have the time to relax around the bed and be with the person who's dying that's great um, so again there are think there are websites that people can look up mm. where they might want to identify that kind of care 
in advance for themselves or for somebody they love, mm. or they might want to be a volunteer for yes. one of those organisations. It's really heartening, actually, mm. isn't it? You know, I've seen, I've experienced a situation where um, if someone's dying and you know, ultimately they w- would like to know what happens. Are they, are they actually dying? And a lot of the time people aren't very honest with those conversations. How can we change that just to say that this is what's happening these are the signs, these are the physical signs, this is what, you know, like your video that's gone viral, that's got two, over 2 million views, where you actually describe the death process. Yeah. I think, do you think there needs to be more honesty yeah, I think, with people? I think that we need people to be able to have those really courageous conversations, but mm. they need to be able to have them not just with courage, but with skill and with compassion. And skill is not something that arises from within us it's something that we learn and any other skill is something that's taught it's practiced it's supervised we get feedback we reflect on it think how long it takes to learn to drive a car yeah so a conversation about whether or not this person is so sick that they might die with their family who have different views about whether or not we should be having this conversation at all in attendance Mm. is more complicated Mm. than driving a car. I need to be able to observe everybody's behaviours. I need to be able to read the body language of each person involved in the conversation. I need to be able to contain everybody's distress. I need to be able to manage expectations appropriately. I need to be able to use the D words, dying, death, properly, out loud, with compassion, And I need to be able to move people from a place of uncertainty to a place of new certainty. Almost certainly this person is dying and new hope that this dying can be well managed. It can be comfortable. We can be here together. We can do this. And unless we actually train staff to do that, we can't expect them to be doing it. What's your sort of future ideal of how we experience death in the future and how we subsequently live a big, it's a bit of a big one. What I'd love people to be able to do is understand that the process of dying is not nearly as terrifying as they probably think it's going to be. To disregard all that rubbish from soap operas and Hollywood and actually go and find out about the gentle, normal process that dying usually is. Yeah. That when they see a death of a person that they love that follows that normal pattern they don't think oh we were really lucky there we better not tell other people because they'll be sad because they've seen horrible things tell everybody tell everybody your death stories and reassure each other and console each other that dying is okay we've got this we can do this this is okay and it's going to happen to all of us and since all we've got is now actually stop dithering about shall i do this and should i do that what will be a good thing to do right now Mm. and just do that Michel de Montaigne great philosopher says at the end of the day you get to the end of the day and you think oh well I didn't do this and I didn't do that and we do that with life as well and he says have you not lived that's all that we need to do day by day just look around look up relish whatever is happening this is living guys it's happening to us now this is our lifetime yeah and even on the tough days 
it's still amazing. Oh, lovely. Thank you so much, Catherine. Thank you very much. And good luck with your paperback that's come out. It was lovely catching up with Catherine and amazing to think that all the years of her experience of working in palliative care means that she's now able to help others understand and normalise the subject of death a little bit more. So let's go to the book club and have a listen to some of the things that that we talked about after reading the book. And yeah, let's, uh, let's see what came up from the evening. So we're today we're looking at, with the end in mind, uh, Dying, Death and Wisdom in the Age of Denial by Catherine Mannix. Um, yeah, and I just, you know, just to start, what was overall opinion? Start with the big one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, was I, it uncomfortable? Was it uncomfortable reading? I think it was 108 pages. Um, mm. But that was be- not because I, I just ran out of time, but I found it... I found it really powerful, but really also uncomfortable mm. reading it. I cried a lot when Emily did. Yeah. Aww. But I didn't find it uncomfortable. I cried in a good way. Like I was like, oh, I'm going to have a bit of a cry now. I'm going to read the book for an hour. <laughs> <laughs> I was. I read it on the train. Cry, but internally weeping. What made you? What was making you cry? Was it, it the know, stories or? Actually, I read it in the week. In a week. And it profoundly affected my mood. Mm. I've just been you really exactly the same as me. I've been dreaming about my mum. It's just it's mm. it's it's mm. like lots of emotions have come up. Not in, no, not in a bad way. To and just to be actually. clear, your mum has died. So yeah. was, what was it in a very like? similar way? So a lot of um, what she talks about the cancer patients in hospices. So it 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 was very parallel to what my mum mm. went through and what I observed. Ridiculously comforting. Mm. In in a lot of ways, in a lot of ways actually, and but and I think in turn very thought provoking mm. on personal on a, on a personal level. But did you experience beyond, that kind of care with her? Yeah, the hospice was brilliant, amazing. Do you know what? It makes me want to work with people. Oh, it does. Mm. I think she was saying, you know, I think the way she really writes is nice really. She does it really nicely that you can capture those without it sounding cliche or. Um, I don't know. It's it's. I, I think her manner, the way in which she writes, is very easy to relate to. It's very accessible, to. isn't it? Yeah. Very short, yes. easy yeah. to read, and non-medical. And you get to know the people. Mm. They're so. And she's really respectful how she writes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You see, I had the opposite effect. I felt like it. I really wouldn't want to work with in that environment. Ah. I don't know why, it just made me feel kind of quite depressed and I don't know if it's because I've not had anyone really close to me dying yet, touch wood, which obviously will happen, but um, so I, I feel like a real outsider reading it and I almost didn't want to know about mm-hmm. it. I really like really? the practicalities really? of... I can't understand. Did you? Ah. I like well, the practicalities... Like I'm not ready for this. I, I like the practicalities of understanding how you died. I think that's really yeah, useful, that's how you cool kind of go into con- mm. unconsciousness. And did you find that comforting? That, I really loved all that. Yeah. What I didn't love was mm. all the personal stories. But I don't know if that's a personal thing, because I don't like watching one born every minute, for example. I don't particularly enjoy watching things like that. Mm. Are you the same, Jen? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I found it too close to home and too hard hitting mm. and almost too truthful and just the detail 
of everyone's lives and the way they were dying, I found quite difficult to read. Yeah. And what I think normally happens in books like this is that you hear about wisdom, you know, life lessons, that kind of thing, whereas this wasn't from that angle. This was very much people just dying. See, and I it wasn't, it you know, was. it wasn't their worst. It wasn't their... I don't know, it was just so It was really raw. It was very raw. So it was very raw. Yeah. And um And not everyone wanted to die. And I felt I just they found weren't. it made me just confront things in my life that I don't really want to. And so I've been burying my head in the sand or whatever, mm. I don't know, but mm. it was it was unbelievably raw. Well, not so I, not ready I couldn't to put it down. I couldn't mm. because of maybe the personal experience. But I was absorbed it no it was it, it was hard, it was hard hitting. But to read it, I just I couldn't put it down. Interesting, yeah, really. Yeah, no, I, I think it's like it's like anything that if you've gone through an experience, you become yeah. very um, ferociously reading on the same yeah. types of topics. So yeah. I think it is a like a, a passing moment of your life that if you can connect to it quickly, because yeah. I read the book really quickly. So, I read it like in a few, in a few days, mm-hmm. and interestingly, I, I felt like I went through a bit of a personal journey reading it. The first few, yeah. I cried a lot, and I thought I don't think I'm going to be able to read all of this. But actually, as each of the chapters went on, I thought, actually, I, I can relate to this. And more than that, I feel like I've come out stronger since my dad has died. And I can now yeah. read these to- read about it and feel okay about it and reflect. Mm-hmm. I felt that was deliberate. I felt like she was doing a really clear CBT thing mm-hmm. in the way that the chapters yeah. were structured. Okay, okay. And it was all like, bang, get you crying. <laughs> Get you thinking, and I then really, gradually give you all of the different ways that yeah. people cope with these so really I love the CBT difficult thing. situations. Me I did too. I love it. I was like, oh, I'm going to apply that. Yeah. I remember my mum, really remember my mum going into her oncology appointment, and she was told that she was going to die. And that's and the, the biggest question, the biggest, it's fearing the fear mm. thing that she talks about. But her, her question was, how is it going to happen? Is it going to hurt? Is it yeah. is it my heart that's going to fail? Mm. What's going to happen? And to be honest, that doctor didn't really answer her question like she answers it in the book. So would this book be good to read if you're know, going if you're, through it? I don't know. If you're dying or... Just, why possibly, like, like now. Yeah. yeah. No, Which is why prepared. when you're saying, oh, I'm not right, mm. I don't need to deal with it yet, I would say, but it's good to read it This now. is part <laughs> of the preparation <laughs> yeah. of making yeah. dealing with it. I, I don't feel... Like I want to read, and I don't feel like I need to read it yet. Yeah. That's the thing. I do definitely feel like I re- will need it at some point, yeah. but I don't feel like I need it yet. Did you like reading books about birth before you had babies? Yeah, I read a little bit, but not not I know because I just quite like just going with. Did you? Time, yeah. I did, and actually, it made me think about that because obviously, giving birth is one of the most personal things you can ever do, and it never turns out how you think it's going to and no one can explain it to you and no you know that kind of primeval feeling you know mm. the, and I just think dying is almost the same thing yeah and I just think it's such a personal bad. thing mm. and so sort of and you it you lonely, are doing it just, on your own it's totally you that is yeah, yeah yeah and I just think so however many books you read however much you research it however much you think about it I don't think that until you're in that moment I or you're know. faced with I, it that I, you can really well, very think how you would handle that because I just think how you know how can we all sitting in this room say how we would feel if someone said to us we don't know you've got two weeks to live yeah. you don't live with us and so I just think you know you can only prepare so much but I think there is something I, I was wondering like I'm definitely take a voyeuristic pleasure in 
not exactly a pleasure, but in the stories that she was telling, like it felt mm, like you were definitely. in someone's private situation. Yeah. And I found exactly the same with birth. So I didn't read loads of birthing stories, but I watched about 700 videos on YouTube <laughs> of people you? having babies. <laughs> and I felt like I knew exactly what to expect and I knew exactly what was going to happen. See, and that's yeah. exactly what happened. But I didn't, and it was really difficult. My second birth, I read every single thing I could, and I got so much comfort from knowing this is what's happening, this is mm -hmm. why, this is what's going to be next. Yeah, and it, really, and it completely really normalises yeah. this physiological yeah. situation. So yes, there are Which obviously, you know, different things happen to different people, but I, I feel like, for me reading this, and I will probably read more, it's all part of just normalising this process so that when it happens, somewhere along the line, I have had, I've read or seen someone dying in the way that the person close to me is mm. going to die and I feel like having that happen already or having mm. addressed it will make that situation easier and less intimidating and it is weird that we're probably the only point in history and cultural culturally that we're really distanced from that like if you think about tribal cultures and a long time ago in this country it was just normal mm -hmm. you know and in catholic <coughs> catholic families like the body would be there and you'd know beforehand and you'd all gather around and it just seems like it's most pe it's really bizarre that you can get to like 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. Some people in the book weren't they? They were like, Never this seen is a 60 year old man and he's never seen this happen. And, and if you think about any loads of like, I don't know, you call them now not tribal cultures, but you know, different different phases. cultures, yeah, different cultures. Yeah. that's just part of everyday life, mm. isn't it? But it's, it's the same so thing in Jewish culture, you would be you would see the body and expect to see the body, and I think it's just it's just yeah, Western, the mm. like. Non it's, it's become very hidden away. Really weird. Yeah. Yeah. Why is that? And birth as well is really hidden away. I think I texted you all in the beginning going, oh, this book's really hard, I've been crying, like, watch it. And it was the first few ones that I'd read. And then I found halfway through, I was like, I'm getting a bit hard about this. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <so> <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> Does anyone try to well i just wanted to ask one more question about this book was did it make you think about your life did it make you think? Yeah, about really what, made me what think your about legacies my life. are and what you have, what you want to do with the rest of your time here. And <sighs> did it make you think like that or not? Not really. It made yeah. me realise how at peace I am actually, and how I've not really got any anything to tie up in that way. Mm. Yeah, it did. It made me think about my life. I think you can't help but think about your life when you think about that. Thank you so much, Catherine Mannix, for joining me and everyone from the book club who read the book. And if you'd like to get a copy of the paperback, it's called With the End in Mind, How to Live and Die Well. And you can also check out Catherine's website, which is withtheendinmind.co.uk. And you can follow us on www.doingdeath.com or social media at doing death.